Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you all. I want to thank Sam Jay so much for sharing his testimony uh, with us today. Excited to be with you this morning. Uh, two weekends ago, uh, my wife and I uh, got asked to dinner with some great friends of ours, and uh, we were really excited because we don't have much of a social life lately with as much as we have been working, and Michelle has been all nights, and so we were excited to be able to go out to eat, and uh, a restaurant got recommended to us, and some of you guys may have heard of this restaurant, and I may get in trouble because it's it, the kind of gym of this restaurant is not many people know about it, but we got recommended a restaurant, and so we headed there, and it was off of Summer Avenue, and we got there in a little place, uh, I, I kind of, you ever like had an address in your GPS and you're expecting like one thing, right? And you get there and it's, you kind of like do the double take, like, is that it? <laughs> and uh, let me show you, the, this is what we rolled up to, yeah, this is it. Uh, we were excited for a nice night out, right? And, uh, <laughs> well, it's not to say that this wasn't a nice night out, but... You know, I did the double take, and I saw the little sign. It looked like Lotus. Yeah, Lotus, that's the name. And Lotus right there. And then here it says something about great steaks and seafood, and it's supposed to be a Vietnamese place. And we're like, this is interesting. So we, uh, we beat our friends there, and we just pulled in. And we're like, well, this, is, this will be interesting, right? And, but it's not exactly what we kind of signed up for. And... Uh, Anyway, we walk inside, and then we see this. Oh, yeah. This was the, I guess you could call it the lobby. Um, it's kind of an eclectic, you know, silk flowers, some real flowers. A lot of their administration there were, you know, and family photos. And there was definitely a box of cookies on the table that later we learned from our friends had been there for about six months. And so anyway, we're, we're, we're walking in going... Okay, and there was also somebody playing Jenga, like in the lobby. We're like, this is really cool. So, we're going, we can endure it, right? Anything. Well, it turns out, uh, two and a half hours later, we left that restaurant and said to ourselves, that is one of the best meals we have ever had in Memphis. It was truly an amazing culinary experience. And if you're foodies, I recommend Lotus, although we shouldn't all go there at once because it only seats about 15, okay? <laughs> but this place is off the chain Vietnamese. I mean, like, it was amazing. Like, flew in Vietnamese food that day, I think, to cook it. It was absolutely incredible. Seriously, like, explosion in your mouth. So good. But I was convicted of something. When I pulled up to that little place, <laughs> I judged it. I totally judged it. Y'all ever done this? Where you like show up somewhere and you like, you try to read the book by its cover. Done it? Been there, done that? Yes. Totally went like, this is going to be a rat hole. Food is going to be terrible. I'm going to waste my money. We're going to walk away sad. And totally was wrong. I was totally wrong. Anybody ever been there? All right. Uh, just look at your neighbor real quick. A little exercise. And just tell your neighbor when the last time was you did that. All right? I mean, you can talk there in a message. This is what we do. <laughs> Thank you. 
He didn't want to talk with me about <laughs> the last or last experience. So. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to turn him down a little bit. Okay. I mean, this is the reality, right? Uh, I, I was a marketing major, was in business before the Lord called me to ministry, and you know, one principle they taught us there was the principle of non-tangible, essentially that when you're offering a non-tangible service, that people evaluate the quality of your service, not based on your actual service itself, but actually based on a lot of the non-tangibles that go with it. It's just a principle that a lot of times we as humans evaluate based on exteriors when really that can sometimes lead us to the wrong place. Especially as we talk about this morning, as we continue our study of James, we'll be in chapter 2, you can get your Bibles ready, but as we get into James chapter 2 this morning, we are going to be talking about the oh-so-common, prevalent, but yet sinful and dangerous tendency to judge based on outward rather than inward. To show partiality, as the Word of God tells us. We do this, and this is not of God. But yet we see it. We see it in the world around us. We see it, a lot of times if you think about partiality or, or treating people differently based on external appearances, sometimes we can think of big things like, like Hitler and the way that he treated the Jews. Or we could think of like the Rwandan genocide of the, the, uh, with the Tutu and the, what is it? The Tutsi and the, hold on. Hutu, that's it. Thank you. The Tutsi and the Hutu, where essentially it was the Tutsi, right, David, that, that were evaluated to see that they had more Caucasian-type features, and they actually became superior to the Hutu and actually exterminated almost a whole race based on just the, the way that their noses were shaped or the way that their foreheads were curved. If we can think of big things like the, the caste system that is still prevalent in India today, or we can even think about things closer to our own neighborhood as of slavery, things that happened 50, 60 years ago of unequal treatment based on race, things that happened here in this city right down the street, and things that are even prevalent today, the racism, the stereotypes, the judgment that we see in our world today simply based on not the content of someone's character, as Martin Luther King said, but color of skin, or societal position, or money, or wealth. It's easy, isn't it, to look at the way somebody dresses and make evaluations about who they are whether good or whether bad. Some of you in your own families have grown up around talk that really exudes a lot of racism, even though people don't want to call it that. Where we make grand stereotypes, broad sweeping statements about groups of people or certain neighborhoods because that's just the way that they are. And it works in both directions, when you're driving through the hood or when you're driving through the rich and fancy gated communities. We can do this. We can evaluate the, somewhat, the way that someone speaks or the car that someone drives or the house that they live in. We can evaluate a set of degrees that they may or may not have and end up doing just what I did to that restaurant, just looking at what you see and coming to grand conclusions that 
are honestly just wrong. This is what the Bible calls the sin of partiality. And what is partiality? Basing your treatment of someone on something other than what you should be basing it on. Basing your treatment of someone based on something other than what you should base it on. Partiality. James, as we continue our study this morning of the gospel meets life, the study of how Jesus Christ actually begins to take hold of our hearts and to reshape us, to, re, uh, to remold us, to transform us into who he is. Oh, man, I am so thankful for the grace and mercy of Jesus, aren't you? I am so thankful. I am so thankful for the Spirit of God that is living and dwelling in everyone who lives by faith in Jesus. The Spirit of God that is able to change our hearts and make us little by little by little more like Him. And that's exactly what James has been trying to do and he will continue to do through this whole book is help us get it. Help us get how the gospel changes our life. As you walk out into the streets, into your classrooms, into your houses, as you have those conversations with your family and friends, you should be shaped not by this culture, but by the gospel. And your life should not exude partiality. James chapter 2. We're going to look at who the Lord is. We're going to look at who he calls us to be. And I'm excited today as we realize how the gospel meets our life in the form of mercy. James chapter 2. I should get that myself. I think it will be on the screens if you do not have your Bible. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man and shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, oh, oh, you, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you, you, you go stand over there. Or, or sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who 
are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we come to you today asking that you would teach us, asking that you would speak to us through your word, and asking, Lord Jesus, that you would change our hearts. Lord, we are so desperate and needy for you to change us from the inside out. Shape us, Lord, to be people of mercy as your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James, core point this morning, and I want you to write it down, and then I'm going to give you four reasons why from this passage that he makes the core point that he makes. And then this week, you're going to go to small groups, right? You're going to go to small groups, right? You're going to go to small groups, and you're going to talk about, in greater detail, this passage and the point that James is trying to make. I'll give you the, the core point first, and then we'll walk through the passage with four reasons that he says this. The core truth is this, and you should all be writing it down or putting it into your phone, because I know that you desire for God to change your life, and not just sit through Sunday service. Knowing and trusting Jesus uproots partiality from our hearts and replaces it with mercy. Knowing Jesus, having his presence within you, trusting him with your life, treasuring him and all that he is and all that he's done, knowing and trusting Jesus, it uproots, like you take a tree out of the ground when you want to get rid of it, it pulls out partiality from our hearts. And it plants, it replaces it with a new seed. That seed will grow, and that will grow and look like this, a heart and a life of mercy. Alright? Four reasons that James says this. We're going to walk through them point by point, and I want to show you from the text. Number one, the core truth will be up here at the top of the screen. Uh, so that you continue to think about it and dwell on it. But these are the reasons that James gives. First thing that he says is that we have to understand God's character. Understand God's character. Why is it that partiality should be uprooted and replaced with mercy? Well, the first reason is that you should understand God's character. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Look back at it with me. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What James is doing here is he's pointing out a contradiction. The imperative here is actually this, that we should... Not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the imperative. And then he qualifies it and says, with partiality. What he's saying is, it is an oxymoron. It is not possible. This is a contradiction of terms. You cannot hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time hold partiality. And then he points to the glorious Lord, who? Jesus Christ. First thing that we have to understand as we dive into this issue of why is it that it's such a big deal for us to show partiality? Why is that so wrong? Why is it that God wants to change our hearts? The first thing we, we see is that God is a God who shows no partiality. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 35. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. There's an instruction for masters to do the same, to stop threatening, knowing that our master is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 25 says this, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, for there is no partiality. And Romans 2, verse 11, probably the most plain of all. For God shows no partiality. All right, will you look at your neighbor real quick and just quote that verse to them? For God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Okay. Simple truth. Let me just tell you who God is. God is a God who does not judge on the basis of anything else other than your heart. God is a God who does not consider race. He does not consider socioeconomic class. He does not consider what you wear, what car you drive in on. He does not consider what kind of coffin you're going to arrive to heaven in. He does not consider where you live, if you're in the good neighborhood or the bad neighborhood or in the slums of India. God does not see any of that. He treats you equally as anyone else. God is just, and he does not show partiality. His heart is just all the way to his core. And that's why we can say, holy are you, God. Because I don't know a single other person like him, do you? God sees all equally. He doesn't evaluate on the basis of all of these wrong things, these external things that so often drag us down. God sees you as equal as everyone else, and he sees your heart. Pure, just, true, right is our God. Amen? He does not show partiality. Thus, you are called to be holy as God is holy. You bear his name. You tell people around you. People know that you're at church this morning, maybe. Imagine you walking out of here showing partiality, you then are not reflecting the heart of God. And he says, understand this. One of the core things that you've got to get is that you can't say that you believe in this impartial God, this just and glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and at the same time have a life that doesn't look like this. That's not possible. Understand his heart. Understand his heart. He is impartial. He is a God of mercy. Not only is he just, but he offers mercy to those who don't deserve to be accepted. That's you and me, right? We don't deserve, we don't deserve acceptance. Rather, we deserve what? We deserve judgment. 
Instead, he opens up his heart and extends love, grace, and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, who was judged in our place so that we could be set free and be recipients of his mercy. Amen? Understand God's heart, and you'll want to uproot partiality and see it replaced with mercy. Secondly, James says this, not only should we understand the character of God, but we should understand our identity. Why is it that we should want partiality uprooted? We should want our hearts and our lives to reflect mercy. We should understand our identity. He, in verse 1, look back at it. He says, we are holding the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He says, my brothers, don't show partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that you need to hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Why is it imperative that you trust Jesus Christ with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind? Why is that even necessary? Because you needed mercy. You were the beggar. You were the one lost and all alone. You were the one in your own willful decision and sin, all of us, Black sheep gone astray, all of us, worthy of judgment, worthy of condemnation, pushed outside the camp, not recipients and inheritance of heaven. Literally, all we deserve is judgment. But God has given his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whosoever might believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Do you remember who you were? Remember that you, you are a grateful recipient of the mercy of God. Don't you remember? Do you not understand that if it were not for God's gracious mercy in your life, that you would have nothing? You would have nothing. So as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose Savior was pierced and died for you, so that you might have what you don't deserve, you also show mercy. You get it? You're a recipient of mercy, so show mercy. Secondly, as equal co-heirs of grace, he starts verse 1, and what does he say? My, what's he say? My brothers. Why do you think he addresses them as brothers? My brothers. He's addressing them as brothers so that they can remember they're not defined by their socioeconomic identity. They're not defined by how much money is in their bank account. They're not defined by the clothes that they show up in. They're not defined by the shoes that they wear. They're not defined by the little groups and cliques that they associate with. They're not defined by what car they drive in. When you get to this place, we don't care where you come from. We're just glad you're here, right? We are all equal. None of us have more to brag about. None of us have less to brag about. We are all co-equal recipients of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not treat people based on all these other things. Rather, we see them as equals because they have received just as much as us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you get that? So when I look at you, 
I don't see you for where you come from. Is what James is saying. I didn't see you as an equal brother or sister. You've inherited just as much as me, and neither one of us can brag about it. Neither one of us can boast about it. All we can do is say, thank you, Jesus. We are co-equal recipients. And then third, we need to realize that we are unworthy servants of the only, all-glorious one. I love that he uses the word glorious, Lord Jesus Christ. Because what he's pointing our attention to is, listen, folks, you are not the judge. So, <laughs> when we go through life, sometimes we like to think that we know God's thoughts, right? And we can make good judgments about people. I know him. I know his heart. I know why he does that. Or we see people, and we see what they wear, or we see where they live, and we think that we're the ones who can judge it. And what James is saying is, point your attention away from all of that garbage, and focus on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the only glorious one, who himself is the only true one, who himself is the only right, wise, all-knowing, all-just judge. He is the glorious one. So you don't need to put yourself in the position of judge because he's got that taken care of. Isn't that great? He's already got that taken care of. <laughs> no longer do you have to feel like you've got to do that. Some of y'all, that's a big release of it. <laughs> Thank goodness, I don't have to judge anymore. You know, I, I thought I was having to set them straight. I thought I was having to, to keep this stuff. No, that's not your role. He's glorious. He got that. Woohoo! Right? The other thing about him being glorious is, you know, sometimes the reason that we get caught up in partiality is because we're insecure. You know, why do, why do women try so hard to get everything so right on the outside? Because you so don't want anybody else to judge you, do you? We all know what it's like to be recipients of impartiality. Sometimes we are so insecure in our own relationship with God that we end up playing the game. We end up playing the game. Whether we're positioning ourselves for it, or actually looking down on others because it makes us feel better. We are constantly fighting for that feeling of contentment and satisfaction in our relationships. One of the great things about the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is that he is glorious. And when he accepts you, do you need the acceptance of anyone else? No. Then you're free from all the game, from all the judging, from all the stereotypes. You're free from it. You've got your satisfaction in Christ. Now you can serve. Now you can focus on true beauty, which is within. Amen? All right. Third, not only should we understand God's character and understand our identity, but third, what James says is that we need to understand the supreme value of faith and the deceit of riches. James goes on in verse 2, and he gives... An example of a man that comes in wearing great-looking stuff. I mean, he's wearing Gucci. He's got on Prada. He's got the, the diamond belt buckle on or whatever cool people wear and not me, right? He drove up in his Mercedes, and he's like high on the ladder. We know that he's got a position like high in city leadership. He's a mover and a shaker, and he reeks up. He walks in with a sleek back hair with an entourage, and he comes strolling in. Everybody goes, ooh, 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 look who showed up at church today. <laughs> right? Let's take an offering. That's an immediate thought, right? 
<laughs> Why don't you come here? And they, they've seen him down here on the front. Would you like some coffee and some donuts? Would you like this and that? Can I tell you about this? You know, everybody just, ooh, ooh look who's here. <laughs> so then a guy rolls in off the street. He didn't drive in on a car. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a car at all. He didn't have a car. And he kind of smiles. And everybody thinks, oh, we know what he's going to do. And so he gets kind of tossed in the corner. He gets put away. Nobody really takes much attention to him. Nobody goes up to him to take interest in his life. Nobody asks him questions. Nobody expresses how glad they are that he's there. James says, this right here, verse 4, have you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges like this? Seriously? He's basically saying, seriously? Seriously? Is this what it's come to? Listen, my beloved brothers, again, reminding them of their identity. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are, not, are they not the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? What James is trying to get us to see here is this. We are treating people based on all of these things that we think are valuable slash or invaluable. We ourselves have assigned value to BMWs and big bank accounts and skin color and all of these, whatever it is in your heart that you have assigned value to. He's saying you have assigned that value. And the reason you, if, if you find yourself in, treating someone impartially, it's because you have assigning negative value toward those things. He says, mm -mm, this is not the way that God works. In God's accounting, what is of true value is faith. Verse 5, don't you see that God has chosen the poor in the world to be what? Rich in faith. He's helping us understand the right standard of measurement is not the exterior, but what? The heart of faith. I brought two plants this morning. Can y'all see these? I got these last night. I think they're pretty cool. Uh, if you got to uh, choose one of these plants. If they're sitting on the shelf, right? And you got to choose one of these plants to purchase, which one would you choose? You don't know where this is going, so you already choose. <laughs> you just in your mind, your normal mind, not sitting here, what, which one would you choose? This one, right? The pretty one. The one that looks all beautiful, right? Well, a lot of times in our life, we judge things based on, like James is saying, we, we assign value to certain things. And this plant, we are assigning value to how beautiful it looks at first glance. But yet we fail to really examine the plant to really understand its measure of value and worth. 
what you would have realized if you had studied this more closely, and I didn't really give you a chance today, but this poor, uh, for those of you listening online, I've got one really pretty plant, one really poor plant. This little plant is really scraggly looking, and it's kind of sad. But what you'd realize is that this plant that you guys probably would have picked, and hopefully you would have done some more examination, but actually, it is in very bad shape down below. It actually has no root system whatsoever. None. You try to take this plant home, and in a matter of days, it will shrivel and die. You try to plant it in the yard, and it will do nothing because it does not have roots. Track with me. So you would have made an evaluation that really would have led you nowhere. But rather, if you had looked at this poor little scraggly plant a little bit closer, it doesn't look great right now. But if you look at it down below, it has a really great root system. Everything is intact. Nothing looks broken. And in fact, it looks like it is growing so much that you take this thing out and put it in the yard, and it's probably going to explode. And with some careful attention, you're going to have a great looking plant soon. It will flower. And it will be beautiful. You understand? Now what James is saying is, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful about what we assign as valuable. It's not the external. It's not riches. It's not race. It's not anything else that you want to think when you see somebody externally. What you need to be looking for is where are the roots of their heart. For faith is more valuable than riches. Riches fade away. Faith endures forever. Amen? And in fact, Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, some, we have a church full of folks who, not everybody, but a lot of you guys are going to have money. Some of you guys look at me right now going, I ain't got no money. Nothing. We are blessed, and many in this church will have money. But let me tell you, that Jesus Christ warns repeatedly to those who have money and says, be careful. It is hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Be careful about the deceitfulness of money. For by money, many have left the faith. Be careful about your money and thinking that having money is all that. In fact, Jesus says that having lots of money is actually more to be pitied than the poor man. Because the poor man can see very easily that he's desperate for Jesus. The poor person can see very easily that all of his hope, all of his joy, all of his satisfaction has got to be in God. Because they don't have anything else. It's not wrong to have money. But you've got to be careful because money creates this feeling like I'm in control. This feeling like I don't need the Lord because I have my own means. It allows your heart to become attached to this world and not as dependent and surrendered to Christ. And in the eyes of God, dependency and surrender to Christ is more valuable than material wealth. You track it. So don't go evaluating people based on external. Rather, see their heart. <coughs> Do you see people for people? The woman that checks you out at Kroger is just as valuable as the CEO of Methodist Hospital. When you meet them, I pray, church, that you are a person that would treat them both with the same love 
the same dignity, the same respect, the same concern, the same care. No matter if it's a person on the street in the hood or a person in the executive office in your workplace, they are the same. And what should matter to you the most is their heart, their heart, their heart. Fourth and finally, not only should we understand God's character, not only should we understand our identity, not only should we understand the true superior value of faith and the seed of riches, but fourth, we should understand God's law of love. James concludes this passage, verses 8 through 13, and we'll look at it and then be finished. Verse 8, if you'll follow with me, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at this one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, then you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are judged in the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. The royal law. You want to know them. He's been speaking against partiality. He's been saying, this is not the way that you're called to be. For it's not God, it's not you, it's not showing the true value of faith. He's saying that, so what are we called to do? He says, you should then seek this. You want to know what you should do? Seek this. Fulfill the royal law. What does he mean by royal law? He's Basically saying, this is what Jesus said sums up all the Old Testament commands. This is the royal law, the law of our King Jesus and his kingdom. That we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. That commandment is not a commandment for you to love yourself more. As many self-help people want you to think, you already love yourself enough, believe you me. What he's saying is the same way that you get up and think about yourself every day, the same way that you want to be treated, the same way that, that you are constantly working for your own good. In that same way, you should seek to love your neighbor. Now the question that comes, well, who is your neighbor? Jesus answers that repeatedly. It's not about who your neighbor is about what kind of neighbor are you. You should be the kind of person that no matter, no matter your neighbor, you should love them. Because God loves them. And God has called you to lo extend love to them. One commentator wrote this. I want you to hear this. James would have us to look carefully at the content of his law. Loving your neighbor as yourself requires an openness to friendship with any neighbor, regardless of that neighbor's wealth, regardless of their possessions, regardless of their position, of their status, of their influence, of their race, of their appearance, 
of their attractiveness, of their dress, of their abilities, or of their personality. You love your neighbor regardless. Now, every Christian operates in some social group. A school, a neighborhood, a workplace. And most social groups have social misfits. You're thinking about it right now, aren't you? The ones who are looked down upon, the ones who are ostracized, or the ones who are neglected. The royal law absolutely prohibits the Christian from joining in in this kind of favoritism. The follower of the royal law will reach out to any and every neighbor. You want to seek something? Then you should seek heart of love. This is God's heart. Before you go thinking, ah, little racial jokes, no big deal. It's just funny. Just with my family. Ah, those stereotypes, those are 89% true. I'll go ahead and make them. Ah, that person is just annoying. I'm not supposed to love them. That's a waste of my time. Before you go justifying to yourself that it's really not that big of a deal, that you don't act with the complete mercy and love of Jesus Christ, James comes in and says, if you're guilty of breaking part of the law, aren't you guilty of breaking the whole thing? You know, you're going you're gonna to self-justify and say, well, I do, I do everything else, but this is just one area that, you know, it's okay. He's saying, you know, if, if I keep all of these commands, listen, if I went out and murdered somebody today on the street, and they brought me into the courtroom, right? They brought me into the courtroom, and I say, well, I'm a good husband, and I give to the church, and I do a lot of community service. It doesn't matter at that point, because I've still transgressed over here. What James is saying is, this thing of mercy and partiality, this is a big deal. It affects more of your heart and your life than you realize it. And you shouldn't just sweep it under the rug. You need to have God's heart of mercy. This needs to be found in you. Jesus himself said, listen, it's easy to love people who love you back. Even pagans do that. People who don't know the Lord enjoy people that like them, enjoy people that are easy to love. That's easy. But what I say is love your neighbor. I mean, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. This is not just love those who are easy to love. This is love as God loves. And you say, how do I do that there? And I say, you need a new heart. How do you have a heart of mercy? How do you have a heart of love? How do you do this? Find the law of liberty that God writes by the Spirit in your heart. The one who shows no mercy will not be shown mercy. What he's saying is, Christians are merciful people, and if they're not merciful people, they prove that they're not Christians. Christians who have experienced mercy will be merciful people. And that's why he concludes that mercy triumphs over judgment. Aim for a heart of mercy. But you can't do this yourself. You've got to have the Spirit of God transform you that you might be like Him. Amen? Knowing and trusting Jesus 
uproots partiality from our hearts and replaces it with a heart of mercy. Church, think about what would be possible for us if we live this out in our city. In this city, in this community, I want to see you. I want to see me. I want to see us. Love people well, regardless of what they offer in return, regardless of what they look like, smell like, having their bank account. We love because God loves us, and God loves them. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. And Lord Jesus, we just exalt you right now. Lord Jesus, I just pray more than anything else today, Lord, that we would just be happy because of the great mercy that you have shown to us. God, I just so desire for every person in this room to know, to know today that you are a God who loves us. You love them. It has nothing to do with what they bring to the table. It has all to do with the fact that this is who you are. You love. You extend mercy. You have not judged, but Lord, you offered grace. But Lord, we've got to trust you. We've got to receive all that Jesus Christ has provided. So I pray today, Lord, that we would have a heart of worship on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have all of our faith and hope. And God, we pray today, oh God, I beg in my own life, that you would continue, God, to work your heart of mercy into me. God, I want to be a man who sees people not based on anything else other than their heart. And Lord, we know that in their heart, you love them. So God, help me to love, help me to pursue, help me to show kindness, and, and Lord, just be good and, and just in every way in my life, because Lord, I want to have your heart, and I want to exhibit your mercy in my life. Make us a church, Lord, that loves well, that goes countercultural here in this very partial um, society, and Lord, help us just to embrace anyone and everyone because of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.